please open them up to the book of John. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6 is the text that we are in this morning. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. And we are going to be continuing on this morning our series through the I Am Statements of Jesus. And for those of you who are visiting us, we for the last five weeks have looked at the I Am Statements of Jesus found in the Gospel of John. There are seven of them. We're looking at the sixth one today. And that might seem a bit strange to do on uh, Christmas as we celebrate the coming of Jesus. But when we look at this I am statement, it, is, it takes place on, in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And that might seem a bit odd. But when we look at the section of Scripture, what we are going to find is that Jesus tells us the purpose of His coming. So as we look at it, we're going to see why He came, why He arrived, what was His goal and aim, and what He came to achieve. And so have that in mind uh, this morning as we dive into the text. But before we dive into it, like all the I Am statements, these I Am statements aren't set in a bubble. There is a context behind it. It's not like Jesus was one day walking with His disciples down the road and just randomly shouted, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or as to today's text, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These are statements that are made and prompted by Jesus because of what is going around him. And so we find that in today's text as well, today's I am statements. And the context is this, is it's the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, as I've said. It's the Lord's Supper. He's sitting around with his disciples celebrating the Passover he has just washed his disciples' feet. There's a lot of joy in this festival. It's kind of like Christmas. We, we get all excited. There's a lot of laughter and the food and eating and just a real good festival of its, and, and a feast. And as he's doing so, Jesus just drops an absolute bomb on his disciples. He says to them as they're eating and joking around, one of you is about to betray me. Now, that's a spoiler. If someone does that today, Christmas dinner or lunch, it's going to spoil the day. Hey. And Jesus does that, and suddenly this joyful evening takes a bit of a somber, serious turn. And as he says that, Judas gets up and leaves. And some of his disciples think, well, Judas has left because he's got the money bag, and they're missing something, and so he's going to go to, to get what they need. And then as Judas leaves, he says to them, oh, and by the way as well, I just want to let you know that our journey is coming to an end. I'm about to head off a place that you cannot go, you cannot follow, you cannot come with me, and so you're going to be by yourself. But don't worry about that. What I want you to do is you must love each other well. You must love each other so well that when people see you, they know that you are my disciples. And Peter pops up and goes, well, no, no, Lord, yeah, that, all that lovey-dovey stuff is great, but can we just backtrack a little? You going somewhere? Where are you going? Where are you going that we cannot follow you? Why is this ending? Lord, I love you so much that I am willing to die for you, he says, so surely I can go with you. And Jesus says, Peter, are you going to die for me? In less than a few hours before the cock crows, you are going to deny me three times. And that's where we'll pick up this morning. All right, so John chapter 14, verse 1 Jesus continues on speaking, and he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas, I love Thomas, says this, Lord, we do not know where you are going. 
How can we know the way? And Jesus responds to him and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Let us pray. Lord, we are thankful this morning for your words. I'm so thankful, Lord, at how relevant your word is for us today. And so I pray, Lord, as we unpack your word, that you would within us stir an incredible amount of faith to live for you. That in the midst of a broken world, a world that seems to be falling apart around us, that we would have faith to continue on living like you have called us to live. And so I ask, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, that you would stir us and you would, through your word, get us ready to live in faith and know you well. I know, Lord, we've got lots of things happening. There's Christmas lunch taking place. There's a whole bunch of things that might be distracting us. I ask that this next half an hour or so, that we would just have our eyes set on you and that you would have our full attention by the power of the Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And this word troubled tells us that it's taken a bit of a somber and serious turn in the evening. And while the disciples don't really know what's about to transpire in the next couple of hours, what the disciples do know is enough to trouble them, make them concerned. Their hearts are troubled. And they're troubled for multiple reasons. One of the reasons is Jesus is about to leave. That has come to a shock. This journey that's been happening for three years in their mind has come to an abrupt, dramatic end all of a sudden, and Jesus is about to go. The one they love, their friend, their teacher, their mentor, a person that they've lived with for three years is disappearing, and they do not know where, and, and they do, all they do know is they cannot follow, and that's troubled their hearts. Not only are they troubled with that, but they're also troubled by the fact that they have a work to do, and now Jesus isn't going to be with them. And suddenly this mammoth task, what they have been called to do, is suddenly bearing on their hearts that they have to do it without their teacher, Jesus. And that worries them. On top of that, Jesus has just said, one of you is going to betray me. And they know it's not them, but they don't know who else in the room it is. As they look around, there would have been skepticism and worry of people that they thought they knew well. Would, could it be this person? Could it be that person? Who is it? Surely not, Jesus. How can one of these men that we know and have lived with you is going to betray you? And then on top of that as well, their fearless leader, Peter, the one who grabs life by the horns, Jesus has said that in less than 24 hours, he will be, uh, deny Jesus three times. And then you've just got to consider, what does the next the, tonight have in, hold, in store for us? If he is going to deny Jesus three times before tonight, what is about to happen? And their hearts are troubled. And Jesus looks at them and says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And I'm, I'm amazed by Jesus here. That Jesus would have any form of compassion towards these men who are in a few moments going to scatter and run as he goes into his darkest hour. But yet Jesus, knowing what awaits him, still cares for those before him. Jesus, in a few hours, will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, falsely arrested at night when no one's around, when everyone else is celebrating and sleeping, and he will be dragged through multiple different courts, kangaroo courts, where people would come through and falsely accuse him of doing things that he did not do and said things that he did not say in order to have him killed. 
He will be beaten. He will be flogged. He will put a, have a crown of thorns put onto his head. They will blindfold him and slap him, spit on him, mock him. He, he will be then told that he was going to, after being scourged, send off to be crucified. As he leads his cross through the crowd, there will be people who are mocking and ridiculing him, those whom he had loved and taught and healed. And as he is stripped naked and nailed to a cross, they would mock him and ridicule him as the sins of the world would be placed upon his shoulders and the wrath of God that was deserved for us would be poured out upon him and he would die. And yet Jesus, knowing full well what awaits him, cares about their troubled hearts. He doesn't say, come on, suck it up, be better. Come on, don't you know what I'm about to go through? He doesn't throw a pity party. He doesn't ridicule them for their, their troubled hearts. But he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He cares about their hearts. He cares about comforting their hearts. And may I say that he cares about our troubled hearts as well. And you see, the troubled heart is the most common thing in the world, regardless of how rich you might be or how poor you might be, regardless of your rank and your class. A troubled heart is not something you can run from. doesn't matter how big you build your wall or how much electric fence you put up. doesn't matter what kind of security company you have. A troubled heart is something that all humans face. And it comes from things partly from the outside, partly from the inside, partly from the body, partly from the mind, partly by things we fear, partly by the things we love. But a troubled heart is something that each and every single one of us face. As a, as a psalm that we teach our children, we taught it to Malachi, and he's starting to let Jesse know about it as well. And it's Psalm 56 verse 3 that says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I put my trust in God. It doesn't say if, it says when. It's inevitable. Regardless of how you are as a Christian, how mature you might be, how well you know your Bible, how long you've been going at it, my friends, you will face trouble and your hearts will be troubled. But in this text, what we find is Jesus gives the remedy to a troubled heart. He says this, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He says the remedy, the medicine to a troubled heart is faith. Believe, believe in me. J.C. Ryle puts it like this. He says, that to believe, the kind of faith he's talking about here is to believe more thoroughly, trust more entirely, rest more unreservedly, lay hold more firmly, lean back more completely. This is the prescription which our master urges on the attention of all his disciples. And now, do not be fooled. The disciples did have faith. They weren't faithless. It wasn't like they had no faith and Jesus is trying to stir some grain of faith within them. No, they had faith already. We see this in Matthew 6, verses 16 to 18, a famous section where Jesus is trying to find out what uh, the people around him might say about him. And they're going through the list and he turns to his disciples and says, but what do you say about me? Who do you think I am? To which Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. There is faith. They have it. But not only did the 12 believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but we see even those on the outer circle of those who follow Christ did as well. We saw it last week with Martha. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he looks to her and says, do you believe? To which he responds in verse 27 and says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. They had faith, but here's the thing, their faith needed to grow. 
Their faith needed to be stirred up. Their faith needed more. And Jesus is trying to press home again the very basics of their faith and saying, believe. Believe more. Believe more assuredly. Believe more deeply. Believe with more conviction. Believe more. Because what, what we've got to remember is that there are degrees of faith. There are those who have a weak and a strong faith, and there's a vast difference between those two. See, we mustn't look down on a weak faith because a weak faith is enough to save someone. But the same person who has a weak faith that has led to salvation is the same person whose heart is troubled and not comforted in the time of trial and time of difficulty. They have a vagueness and a dimness of why they believe and who they believe and what they believe and what Jesus is trying to press home on us this morning and to press home on the disciples as well is believe more. Hold more firmly. Your heart's troubled. Believe in me. Believe in me. And your hearts will have the remedy of what it needs. And so what we see in this text is we see three things that Jesus gives to us that we are able to hold on to, to hooks that we can hang our faith upon when our hearts are troubled, that might give us peace to our troubled hearts. And the first one is this. It's found um, in verses 2, 3, and 4. I'm sorry, I don't have verse 2 for you up on the screen. I only realized that this morning. It says this. In my, fa- uh, in my Father's house are many rooms, If it were not so, would I have told you that I would go and prepare a place for you? Verse 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And so Jesus encourages his weak faith disciples and tells them, don't worry, even in your weak faith, I want to let you know there's a place that I have gone to prepare for you. There's a room in my Father's house. Regardless of how weak or how strong your faith is, there's an assurance of our salvation and that Christ has a place for us in His Father's house for us. This is not like there are a million rooms in heaven and the top million Christians with the the top faith are the only ones who make it in. There is enough room, he says, for you in my Father's house. Now, consider the thief on the cross this morning. He was next to Jesus as Jesus is being crucified. His hands, too, nailed to the cross. And as he is dying by God's grace, he sees how Jesus acts and is responding to death and how vastly different it is uh, to anyone else, and, and how what he is saying, and in that moment, he is convinced that Jesus is God, and he believes. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says to him in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But notice that the thief on the cross did not go to church. He didn't come to church the once a year on Christmas Day. He didn't come and enroll in church membership. He didn't attend regularly. He didn't know the Apostles' Creed or the Lord's Prayer. He hadn't heard that before. He hadn't gone and done religious acts and given to charity. He hadn't made up for the things that he had done wrong. All he could do, nailed to the cross, was simply believe and confess that Jesus is Lord and there was a room made for him in heaven. Weak faith. Guaranteed a room in heaven. This is the assurance that Jesus is trying to press home 
for the troubled heart. There's a place with, for you with me in heaven. Now, please, the point here is that we will be with Christ. The point of this text is not that you will receive a mansion. That's not the primary purpose of this. Some translations have, for some reason, translated rooms as mansions, but the word there is abode, so I don't know where they've got it from. But the point here for Jesus is that arriving in heaven is not staying at a hotel. You're not a guest. You're not just passing through. You're not just a guest, in, but rather you are a child of God who has a permanent room. My children do not fear today that they go home that there might be a room for them. They are assured of it. They know it. Why? Because I am their father. And this is my house, and they get to stay. And there's a room. And the same is with us. There's a room with Jesus. Please do not make it about the glitz and the glamour. That is not the primary purpose. It's not about the wealth and all the great things that are in heaven. They are assuredly there for us. But the main thing that brings us comfort is not that you will receive a mansion. The main thing that will bring you comfort is that you, that you will be with Jesus. Because the reality is this, that Christ is the one where all blessings flow from. He is the one where we find our joy. He is the one where we find our satisfaction. He is the one where we find our peace. It's the same here on earth. That we know from earthly experience that we can taste many things, experience much delight in certain things, but they all fade. The, the trip that you went on the other day or, the, or you're going on these holidays, you will, when you are back at work, long to be back because it is fading away what you once had. The things that we eat and we drink, they are good in those moments, but the joy seems to fade because we are placing our joy in things that aren't meant to be the source of our joy. They are temporal. But God himself is eternal. And the same is with heaven. Hear me here. If we arrive in heaven and Jesus is not there, with all its perfections, it will lack. Because our joy is not found in things. Our joy is found in the one who gives us things. And that's where our lasting joy is. And so Jesus is trying to encourage the hearts of the disciples and us by saying, you will be with me and in me you will find joy and peace for all eternity. Are your hearts troubled? You with me? And so we see this, the result of what this looks like in Revelations verses 21, verses, uh, and Revelation 21 verses 3 and 4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the uh, throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. Now, now I want you to know who wipes away the tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And so when we arrive in eternity, in our room we will be with Christ, and in Christ we will find joy. That's why there will be no more mourning. In Him, He will wipe away our tears. In Him, He promises that there will be no more suffering. Why? Because we are with Him. It's from Him that flows all the blessings. It's from Him that flows the riches. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus says, you are going to be with me. And so what this results in for the believer who's going through difficult times now is it results in that's able to continue living a life of faith even in the midst of trouble. Romans 8 verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul again says in another book, in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 8 and 18, he says, So we do not lose hearts. We do not lose hearts. Why? 
Though our outer self is being wasted away, though things are tough and difficult now, we do not lose heart because our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but things that are unseen are eternal. As we look to Christ, knowing that we will be in glory with Him and all the blessings that will flow from Him to us, our hearts are stirred to continue. And we do not lose heart because we know that what is happening now is temporal. But what we have guaranteed, a room for us prepared by God, guaranteed is that we have that waiting for us. And so we go further. And so Jesus looks at us this morning and says, do not lose heart, believer. Believe you will be with me and there will be, all of this will disappear as you trust in me. The second thing that he tells us to hang our faith upon is this, is the work of Jesus. Now, what we see is in Scripture clearly tells us that we are unable to make it into heaven on our own accord. That because of sin in our lives, what has happened is our relationship with God has been severed. It's been broken. And we are unable to cross this great divide. We can't get to him. We see this in Isaiah 59 verse 2. It says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the result is that all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and therefore can't get to him. We see this in Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of our sins, Scripture tells us that the punishment, the wages of sin is death in Romans 6 verse 23. That we deserve to die because of us, not just a physical death, but an eternal death in hell. We are going to die and spend eternity there. And there is nothing, Scripture tells us, that, that we can do in order to make that up. No matter how many good works you might do, they aren't good enough to get you to heaven. We see this again in Isaiah. It says, and we have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. The best of the best that you can give before a holy God is like a polluted garment. You cannot get to this glorious heaven that we have been speaking about by yourself. So what does Jesus do? How do we get there? Jesus says, I am going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now, what this does not mean is that Jesus is going to whip out some spiritual hammers and and nails, and he's going to go to Vincent Hardware, and he's going to make sure and sort your room out. And that's why it's taken him 2,000 years to get here, because he's got millions of rooms to get going, and construction takes a really long time. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not got, have to get those hammers and nails. I'd remember that Jesus spoke and creation came into being. Trust me, he doesn't need a hammer and nail. But also what we see in Matthew 25, verse 34, it actually says that the work is already done. It says the kingdom of, Jesus talking about the judgment day, says the kingdom, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. It's already prepared from the foundation of the world. The kingdom's already sorted. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I am going to go prepare a place for you? He says, well, there's a place for you, but you have no way of getting there. I'm going to go prepare the way for you to get there. What Jesus is saying is that you have sin, and your sin has not yet been atoned for. So in the next couple of hours, I am going to go atone for your sins. What Jesus is saying is the Lamb of God has yet to be slaughtered. 
And in a couple of hours, I will go and be the Lamb of God who is slaughtered upon a cross. Jesus is saying that the, your con, your, the curse, the, your, uh, um, the, uh, your curse, your condemnation uh, has yet to be satisfied. But he will become the curse. He will bear your condemnation and he will receive the bruising of the Father for you. Jesus is saying that he has yet to die. And once he has died, what he will do is he will break the jaws of death. And out of the jaws of death, he will snatch out his life and he will raise himself again. And in doing so, he will make a way. He will make a way through what he's about to do. That's what he's saying. He will prepare a way for now. For, for the non-Christian, that is important for us to realize that Jesus is calling you to believe in him. Friends, as I have said, you cannot make it on your works. You are not good enough. You might look around the room and compare yourself to us and say, I'm better than all of you. And that might be true, but compared to a holy God that we have sung about, you fall radically short. And your one sin, I had to speak, I was speaking to my son about this today. Your one sin requires you to be punished. Just the one. And you cannot make it up for it. And so you are deserved of that. But what Jesus says is, I've gone to make a way where you could make no way. I've gone and taken care of your sin where you could not take care of your sin. And all you have to do is believe. We see this in John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believe in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You don't earn it. It is a gift. Romans 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. It's gifts. Today, our kids were blessed with gifts, not because they earned them, but because we gave it to them. We, we earned the money. They didn't. It is a gift. And so the call to you is to be saved by believing. Because your heart is in greater trouble than you realize. And the solution, the remedy to that is faith in Christ alone. But to the Christian this morning, the call is to, to believe, to, to keep your eyes on Christ. Are you, is your heart troubled? Is your world seeming to fall apart around you? You are to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because what happens to us as Christians is when we go through hardship, we start to doubt whether God cares for us, don't we? When things to be, seem to be falling apart and life is really tough, we look around and go, Lord, do you really love me? Do you really care for me in this situation? But Jesus says, Christian, keep your eye fixed on the cross. Look to the cross. What do you see? The greatest demonstration of my love for you. I have loved you then. If I would love you when you were my enemies, as Romans 5 says, if I would love you when you were in your sin and falling apart without me and I would die for you, how much more now that you are alive in me, how much more that you are now my children that I would still love you? My love for you has not faded. My love for you is steadfast. And if you doubt that in the midst of your trial, that God would care for you, that he would come through for you, how he would certainly do that now. He would do it because he loves you. Do you doubt that? Keep your eye fixed on the cross. That's where you find the faith that you need. Keep your eye fixed on the cross. And lastly, Jesus tells us about himself. He says this in verses 4 and 5. He says this, and you, uh, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
we must not be hard on Thomas. I think sometimes Thomas gets a bad rap. Um, you know, the, Jesus is speaking here, and all the disciples find themselves in a similar boat. They don't know whether what Jesus is saying. And they, the last time someone spoke, that was Peter. Peter, God, you're going to deny me three times. So they're just keeping quiet. They're just nodding and not understanding. But Thomas has the courage and they go, Lord, no, hang on a second. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus replies the I am statement that we are looking at today. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, Thomas. You see, Jesus didn't misread the room. He didn't misunderstand, uh, and he just thought that the disciples knew, and actually they didn't. No, they do know the way there because they know him. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way, Thomas, and therefore you do know. You see, the deficiency of our faith, church, is not that we have a poor expectation of what God can do. The deficiency of our faith is more that we have a poor understanding of who Jesus is. Our deficiency of our faith is that we have a poor understanding of who this Jesus is. What our faith urgently needs is not necessarily to know all the promises of God off by heart or even know what God would do to solve our situation. What our faith urgently needs is to know who this Jesus is. Why is that the case? Because if I have a stranger who comes up and makes me a promise and tells me what they're going to do, and have my wife who comes up and makes me that same promise and tells me she would do the same thing, who am I trusting? I'm trusting my wife. Why? Because I know her. I know her character. I know she will do. She's a go-getter. She'll get things done. The stranger, I haven't a cooking clue who that person is. And the same is with Jesus. If you don't know who Jesus is well, you could know all his promises, but you would doubt his character behind him. And so Jesus points to himself here. Jesus says, you need faith. You need to have faith in who I am. And this is who I am. And he gives us three things. We'll go through them quickly. This is what he says. He says, he is the way. Now notice Jesus didn't say he just made a way, but that he is the very way. Jesus didn't just come to set us an example on how to live, though he did set us a good example. Jesus didn't just come as a moral teacher to teach us good things, though he taught us wonderful things. Jesus came to be the very way. It is in Christ and in Christ alone that you are able to get there. He is the way. Without Jesus, you will not get to heaven. You cannot become, get into the presence of God, for he alone atones for your sins. It is in Jesus alone. You have to have Jesus. There's exclusivity here to Christianity. It can only be in Christ. Not through moral actions, not through church attendance, not through charitable work, only in Jesus. He is the very way. Acts 4 verse 12 makes this clear, and it says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only way. Jesus says, I am that. And now for the Christian this morning, I want to encourage you that if God has, Jesus has made a way, he is the very way to God that you take advantage of it. That you have access into the presence of the Father, unhindered access right now because of Jesus, that you would take advantage of it and run to it. Use it. It is only by going on this way, going in Christ, going to Jesus, that your faith will be stirred. Ignore it and your faith will be weak. 
The second thing that Jesus says, he says that he is the truth. He is truth incarnate. That's what we express. Jesus, the, the self-expression of deity formed in a little baby as we celebrate today. And he will say a little bit later on in this text that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen all of God, because I am the self-expression of who God is. It is no wonder then that Jesus was saying, John 8 verses 31 to 32, he says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is, it's only in Jesus, my friends, that you can be set free. Other religions, other philosophies will promise you truth. They will promise you freedom, but they do not lead to freedom. Only in Christ can you find true freedom. It is only in Him. And for the Christian this morning, we're told in John 17, 17, that we are to, Jesus says, to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Your word is truth. That if we are wanting to grow in our understanding of Jesus so that we might have a faith that is strong, friends, you have to spend time in God's word. By the power of the Spirit, who is also called the Spirit of truth, you need a direction and help by the Spirit to help you read God's word so that you might see Jesus. Without reading your Bible, your faith will be weak, I promise you. And when turmoil times come, your faith will be unstable because you will not know him well. Do not neglect your Bibles this coming year and spend time with him. Lastly, he says, he is the life. He is the life. He doesn't just give us life. Jesus doesn't just give us water to drink so that we might have life or give us bread to eat that we might have life. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the life. I am the living water. Do you want life? You have to have Christ. Do you want to have spiritual life? You have to have Jesus. Do you want the fullness of life? You have to be closely connected to him all the time. You have to grasp him, not just the things that he said, but you have to have him. You have to be connected to him, hold him, know him. And the way you do that is that you have to do that through prayer. Regularly running to Jesus, holding on to him in prayer. Using the way that he has made him himself, coming to proclaiming the truths of who he is in prayer. And the promise is if you do that, you will gain life. Do not let your hearts be troubled, for there is life in Jesus, not in the things of this world. Our faith is most stable when it is centered on who Jesus is. Our faith is most stable when it is centered on who Jesus is. And like Peter walking on water, we need to look more steadily at Jesus, and less at the waves and the winds that are causing our hearts to be troubled. And the promise is that we will have peace. I'll close off with this verse. It says in Isaiah 26, verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Because he trusts in you. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, church. Focus on him. And the call of Christ this morning for you is believe. Believe. Believe more steadily. Believe more deeply. Believe more assuredly. Grow in your faith and your hearts will not be troubled. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you that 2,000 odd years ago, you sent your son Jesus, that you would look upon us with love and love us so well. 
And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would take on the form of human flesh and that you would live amongst us, live a, a perfect life that we could not live and you would become the atonement for our sins. And this morning, I pray for each and every single one of us that our faith in you would grow deeper and wider, that we would believe, believe more deeply and believe more assuredly in you. For those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you, by your grace and mercy, would open their eyes to the wonder of Christ this morning. May your word settle within their heart and find good soil, and may they come to know you, we pray. And I pray for those of us who do know you, but maybe have neglected our, our belief in you, I pray that you would solidify in them a deep desire to grow in you daily. And lastly, I pray for all of us that we would just have a deep faith in the person of Christ. That we would regularly use this way that you have made open to us. That we would regularly proclaim the truth and know that you are exactly what we need. And we would keep our eyes fixed on you, not on other things. And that in you, that in you we would go to so that we might have life and the fullness of it, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.